This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And we start today with Elon Musk, the world's richest person. He is buying Twitter for $44 billion, is this a good thing or a bad thing for free speech, tech, social media? We've got a great panel standing by here to discuss this. First, have a listen to this here now. There's Elon Musk speaking in a recent TED Talk about his plans to buy Twitter. He says it's not about making money. Have a listen to what he says here. This is not a uh, way to sort of make money, uh, you know. My... my strong intuitive sense is that having a public platform that is maximally trusted and, and broadly inclusive is extremely important to the future of civilization. But you've, um, you've described I, yourself. I, I don't care about the economics at all. Okay, that's Elon Musk there talking about his plans for Twitter. All right, let's discuss now with my guest what a great panel we've assembled for you on this. Ari Goldkind is a lawyer, political, and legal expert and commentator, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Ari, thanks a lot for coming on today. Great to be with you, Mike. Great to have you here. Ethan Behrman is also on the show. Ethan is an attorney from California. He's an expert in tech law, politics, and the media. Ethan, thanks for coming on today. Uh, Mike, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you for being here. You're both following this story closely. Ari, let me go to you first. Elon Musk buys Twitter. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing that a billionaire has to step into the fight to protect us from other billionaires, the Bezoses, the Selzenbergers, the Bloombergers, and the sort of media spin. Uh, on their side, I don't like the idea that billionaires run the world. I tend to have this naive idea that we should have a democracy where whether you make a billion dollars, a hundred million dollars, or fifty thousand dollars, your voice matters. But to sort of level the playing field with what Twitter has been, which is a cesspool of censorship, a cesspool of hidden algorithms, a cesspool of shutting down the other side, not because your ideas are better but because you know you cannot out-debate or out-argue the other side. It's a very, very good day for free speech. That being said, get back to me in six months, and we'll see if Elon Musk <laughs> comes to the same pressures that so many other billionaires have done when they want to play with the sort of in-team and in-crowd politically. All right, Ethan, you've been a, a critic of Elon Musk. I think, I think Elon even blocked you on Twitter, right? Oh, yes. He blocked me uh, <laughs> several years ago for, for pointing out his hypocrisies um, that he has done for his entire career. I first wrote my, my, my first critical article uh, regarding Elon Musk back in 2013, when everybody started uh, thinking of him as the second coming of Steve Jobs, which I don't believe he is. Yeah. What do you think about him taking over Twitter? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I'm, I'm not a fan of it. Actually, oddly, Ari and I agree on, on one key point, and that is that billionaires buying uh, media platforms for their own, um, you know, adventure is not healthy for a democracy. It just isn't, and it never has been. And, and in the United States, at least, 
we have about 150 years of, of the wealthiest 0.1% doing this and controlling media narratives. Some of them are are very benign, and some of them are very malign in their intent. And we're not exactly sure about Elon Musk, but his track record is very poor uh, in terms of what he will do. And uh, so I'm not optimistic that uh, Twitter will remain uh, a place for the rest of us. Okay, Ari, there have been some commentators on Twitter have been famously banned from the platform, notably former U.S. President Donald Trump. Do you think that Trump should be allowed back on Twitter? Well, I think Trump should never have been kicked off Twitter. I thought that was the disgrace of disgraces. I mean, at the end of the day, they didn't shut him off for any other reason than their employees and their algorithm doesn't like him. And a, a whole series of tens of millions of people do. It wasn't hate speech. It wasn't unlawful speech. It's just he's on the wrong side. It's the same thing you see with stories that are censored or called misinformation or disinformation. You don't agree with the guy, vote him out of office. That's what 81 million, in my view, completely misguided voters did a couple of years ago. We see where that's led us. But to me, this is a marketplace of ideas. This is a competition of debate. And, you know, I go back to a, a, myself being a lawyer. You know, it's almost like the movement in Canada, and I appreciate uh, your other guests today, and I practice in different countries. There's a movement in our country to do away with cross-examination because it makes people uncomfortable. It's delicate. Certain people should be believed. My view is the cream rises to the top. Crappy ideas will sink to the bottom. Anything to me that opens up the public square, and I don't buy all this private company, public company, First Amendment, Charter of Rights, that's all sort of a, a red herring. Anything that opens up the public square where people tend to congregate. By the way, Steve Jobs, to me, who celebrated as a hero, is no hero. He made the world a lot worse than Elon Musk. That's a conversation for a different day. I think all of these people that have been deplatformed and banned because they have views that the millennial employees at Twitter don't like should all be reinstated, even though dumb Trump has said he'll stay on Truth Social, which a grand total of six people are probably looking at. Yeah, Trump has said that he would not return to Twitter, even if Elon Musk welcomed him back. Ethan Behrman, what do you think about that? Should Trump be allowed on, or some of these other people who have been kicked off Twitter, should they all be let back on now? Absolutely not. And that's where, really quickly, I want to comment on something Ari just said. Shocking sure. to hear that there would be a movement to remove cross-examination. That is, to any attorney, that is that is a disturbing statement to make. Um but, but differently, the United States First Amendment, we're, we're very clear on these issues. It is a private company with a terms of service that are very clear if you bother looking at them, which says, if you want to use my free service, you have to follow my rules. It is, that is the way it works. Donald Trump didn't follow the rules. Many of these people don't follow the rules. And so they got booted off after repeatedly violating the rules. If I invite you into my place of business and I say you have to wear shoes and shirt or no service, if you don't have shoes on or a shirt, you don't get service and I get to kick you out. That is how the United States works. I also disagree. Uh, well, I also agree that there's probably six people using Truth Social. But why didn't Elon Musk look at buying one of these other platforms? And, and more importantly, this idea that the right wing voices are getting shut down is, is facially false. Because Facebook is the, by far, almost 10 times the size of Twitter, largest social media platform on earth. And nine out of the top 10 posts on the majority of days are right-wing 
posts. So it's not like right-wingers are getting silenced on a smaller social media platform, which is, by the way, um, I'm a contributor to the uh, California Antitrust and Empire Competition Law Treatise. There, there, nobody is talking about this move by Elon Musk you know, being looked at for antitrust. We're not seeing any compliance issues on the face of it, at least. There's not going to be any real diligence issues. But the, the shareholders still have to vote to approve the agreement that was made between the board of directors and Elon Musk. And I don't know that if the shareholders are going to vote yes or no. So this isn't actually a done deal yet in terms of Elon Musk taking over. Okay. Ari Goldkind, your thoughts? Uh, first of all, you'll hear these claims for an antitrust look at Elon Musk. Dead, deafening silence and critics for antitrust looking at Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post. Absolute crickets for Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, by the way, I don't think Facebook is at all influential in our politics. If you look at, I mean, obviously I'm going to invite your audience to Google a name named Barry Weiss, B-A-R-I-W-E-I-S-S. Yeah. If you really want to read a smart piece, she'll talk about how Twitter is the masthead of the New York Times. What you'll discover on Twitter, and I'll be quick about this because you may want to go to break, is Twitter's algorithms will come up on a Monday morning and they'll say some people outraged by what somebody said. What the person said is completely reasonable, completely normal. It's some movie star, some politician, some sports star. Twitter will say some people. It then trends, it gets carried away, and it turns into something that sort of tells us that 6 trillion people in the world are outraged when it's really 52 people. So at the end of the day, there is nothing more influential than Twitter. The real disagreement right now right. with Elon Musk, Elon Musk is he's a billionaire that people just don't agree with his views rather than any other more true or ideological argument. So as we continue talking about Elon Musk, the richest person in the world, buying a Twitter, $44 billion. My guests are Ari Goldkind and Ethan Behrman. Phone lines are open, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Terry on the line in New West. Hey, Terry, what do you think about this? Well, I, don't, I never use Twitter. I'm this old guy that doesn't like technology, but... Um I have concerns about um, the new so-called new freedom in um, the Western world. Uh, my dad was in the States, and when I look at uh, something, somebody like Donald Trump, I just shake my head and think about how nasty he was to people, how uh, de degrading he was. Uh, I guess that's called freedom of speech. That's fine, but there's such a thing as, as slander laws as well. So um, we had a premier, actually Dave Barrett, that took WAC Bennett to court, or was going to, because he accused uh, W.E.C. Bennett of slandering him during a protest here in 72 in the election campaign at the Royal Towers Hotel in New Westminster. So these people that get on Twitter and say, I can say whatever I want about anybody, any minority group they don't like, or any politician, and degrade them and slander them. Sorry, guys, you're an adult. Act like an adult. Have some dignity. And, um, you know, you should be taken to task for what you're saying sure. because there's such a thing as laws, right? Okay, Terry, thank you for the call. Well, Ari, you were speaking out earlier about the importance of free speech, but, you know, there are limits on free speech, and we have laws in Canada, right? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'll be brief here because I know you were going to go to Ethan. I couldn't disagree with your caller more. I think there's something extraordinarily adult about putting your adult hat on and not claiming that people who don't say, say things that you like or that you think are not nice or talk about minorities or talk about things that you completely disagree with, that somehow they have less of a right to opine on that than you. Sure, there are hate speech laws in Canada. They're never invoked yeah. quite properly because nobody seems to understand what they are. They've become sort of catch-up. 
you spread it on everything by saying, I don't like it, or it's degrading, or it's racist. And secondly, to that, you know, there are defamation and slander laws. Now, that's an access to justice issue. Most people can't afford to pay Ethan and I to do that. But that, again, has nothing to do with free speech, and I don't know why this has to be repeated. Free speech isn't for you to decide what speech you think is right or wrong. It's a public square, and as Elon Musk said, because the segment's about Elon Musk, he had the best line about it the other day, which is, I want everybody who hates me, disagrees with me, criticizes me, come on Twitter and do that, because that's actually what free speech is. Okay, Ethan Behrman, your thoughts? Well, so free, Canada and the United States just have very different laws when it comes to this idea of free speech. So I cannot speak to Canada at all. That is Ari's area. Um, but in the United States, our defamation laws are actually very difficult um, to, to enforce. And, and Ari is absolutely right. It's an access to justice issue. Very few people can spend a half a million or a million dollars or more uh, to pursue a defamation claim, which they often get into that realm if it's going to trial. So, but what we have is this idea in the United States, free speech applies under the First Amendment to the government interfering with your speech. Nothing that we're talking about today qualifies under the First Amendment of the United, in the United States. So, what we are talking about is moderated speech. Most people, like that previous caller, do not want to spend their day dealing with racists, white supremacists, hate mongers, liars. Remember, President Trump uh, was documented to have lied over 30,000 times in four years in office. An unprecedented, unfathomable amount of lying and hatred coming from the guy who... Um, you know, won the electoral college and never actually won the popular vote in the United States, which is a whole separate issue of how the U.S. elects presidents. But, but the issue here is Elon Musk has a terrible track record. Remember when he called the diver who rescued people, children, a pedo because that guy didn't like Elon Musk's proposal? And so that's what Musk did. Remember that Elon Musk, for the sake of saying everybody should be on Twitter to critic, he blocked me on Twitter for pointing out his hypocrisy of claiming to be libertarian while taking billions of dollars, not only to bail him out when Tesla was failing, but also endless government subsidies in the United States that have added up to well over $5 billion now that okay. actually made his companies succeed. I mean, he has a terrible track record on these issues. Okay. Ari, I'll give you the final word. you got 30 seconds here to wrap up. Go ahead. I, I don't think the First Amendment ends it. When you have the White House director, Jen Psaki, standing at the podium directing anti-social media companies to moderate censor, you have a private company being asked to do government bidding. That crosses a line. And I will take Elon Musk's con contributions to society, climate change, global warming, about one million times over anything Joe Biden's ever done in his career. And I think that covers 30 seconds with maybe three seconds to spare. Okay. All right, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for a good conversation. Thank you for your time there today. Ari Goldkind is a political commentator, a lawyer. Appreciate him on the show again today. Ethan Behrman, he's based in California. He's a lawyer, too. He's an expert in tech, law, and politics. 
Well, let's talk about wait times for surgery in Canada now. The waits are getting longer. The backlogs are getting worse. Now more Canadians are opting to travel outside of the country to get their surgery. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Jamie Marocker. Patricia Rush's stride is quick and strong, but a mere couple of months ago, the now 60-year-old could barely limp. I was using a walker to get around, and my life was cut to next to nothing because I just was in so much pain. Rush needed a total hip replacement, but was told the wait in Alberta was a minimum of 15 months. Once COVID hit, the time more than doubled. I had to do something. She found a clinic in Lithuania. For $16,000, Rush was able to book flights, surgery, and rehabilitation. The wait time? Two to four weeks. Thankfully, I could afford to go there, but I know many people that can't afford to go there. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, we just listened to that story there of Alberta resident Patricia Rush, 60 years old, in severe pain while she waited for hip surgery. She decided to get the surgery in Lithuania rather than continue to wait in pain. Is that an extremely unusual story to you, or are you hearing about more Canadians choosing that out-of-country surgery option? Well, I think what's really disturbing about her story is just how common that experience is uh, of Canadians waiting in pain, disabled, unable to work or live their lives because we have normalized waiting to the extent that we have in this country. You know, I'm grateful for her that she had the means to be able to go and, and get this problem solved so she could reclaim her life. And we are seeing more Canadians do that. But of course, we realize that, you know, not everyone has the economic ability to, to go and, and pay for something like that. So I think what this is really a reckoning moment is, is what, where have we come to in this country that we have normalized putting people through this type of suffering uh, in the name of our public health care system that is no longer adequately supported to really meet the needs of Canadians? And how has this become acceptable? Because it clearly is not. Yeah, and we heard in that report that she was facing a potentially extremely long wait to get her surgery in the public system in Alberta, like maybe years Whereas if she traveled out of country, she was waiting two to four weeks. And then we also heard about a median wait time for surgery of 25 weeks in Canada, the longest we've seen. Is that like, how does that compare? What does that say to you? You know, I think that's really the tip of the iceberg. And when you talk to actual surgeons and what they're experiencing, especially right now in this stage of the so many cancellations and the growing backlogs, you know, what, what we're hearing from them is the, the wait time data is challenging because it really depends what governments are reporting. Their actual experience with their patients is many people are waiting well over a year or longer uh, for these very critical surgeries like hip and knee replacements that have huge impacts on quality of life. So I think we're, we're grappling to understand the scope of this issue and, and the actual lived experience of the people behind these numbers and statistics and the dramatic impact it is having on, on people's lives and their quality of life. Why are the surgery wait times so long right now? Is it, is it really just come down to the pandemic and that created the backlog? I think we've been seeing increasing wait times uh, for years as, as we've had funding issues across the system in terms of the amount of surgeries that can be performed. 
And now, of course, at this point in the pandemic, we're literally at hundreds of thousands of surgeries that have been canceled and delayed. And that, that's probably not even capturing the number of people that never even got that far along in the process. And of course, there's still people coming into the queue that, as normally would. So we've got the need to meet the ongoing demand that we always would. And on top of that now, hundreds of thousands of cases we need to catch up on. And that's against a backdrop of hospitals that remain over capacity. Many are, are having significant staff shortages due to the prevalence of COVID. So, you know, hospitals have up to 20 to 30% of their staff unable to work. Um, so we're not able to be ramping up. And in fact, many hospitals are still canceling surgeries uh, to make space for acute care patients. So the system is under uh, dramatic stress still. Um, and we're just not able to, to rally the resources that are needed to both catch up on the demand, meet the ongoing demand, and care for the number of people who need the hospital. All right. Speaking to Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association, it's a pretty bleak picture you're painting there, and I suspect that more and more Canadians may be thinking about an out-of-country option to get the surgery that they need. Is that something, like, as the head of the Canadian Medical Association, is that something you're concerned about? Is that something you would advise people against doing? Well, I am really concerned about it, and, and the reason I'm most concerned about it is I, I think we have a social contract with Canadians that they pay taxes to have a healthcare system that's available for them. And when that's not happening to the extent that we find ourselves in now, I think we really need our governments to be accountable for that and to work with us around solutions uh, rather than just normalize this type of suffering, and that's really concerning. You know, are there lots of safe places people can go, alternative countries, and have these procedures? Yes, there are, and, and, and many people are choosing that. But I, th I think the real issue for us is, do we accept this as a society? And I think the answer clearly should be, this is not good enough. Yeah, do you think it's risky for Canadians to consider something like this? Like you mentioned that there are some countries that would offer excellent care it appears but i imagine there are other countries where maybe it would be a little risky to do something like this do you, do you have any thoughts on that no absolutely we know of course the standard of medical care is not the same across the world um and of course you know the patient is then sort of on their own having to make that determination do they feel comfortable with the quality of care they're going to receive um and and there is always inherent risks in those decisions but I can also appreciate for people that aren't able to work, aren't able to live their lives, aren't able to function, and with no end in sight and when their suffering is going to end, that those are risks people are probably increasingly willing to take. And, and again, I think that really need our governments to take this seriously because we're putting Canadians in really an impossible situation. Okay, what do you think needs to be done? Is it just a matter of pumping more money into the public system here? I think it's many things. I think we really need a revamp of our system and how it works. There's there's many um, aspects to it that aren't efficient and don't optimize our resource utilization, and we need to really look at that. We need to make sure that, that the funding in our healthcare system is driven towards the outcomes we're trying to seek and that there's accountability there. There is also an issue just generally that the cost of delivering healthcare in an aging population is increasing and the amount of dollars available for healthcare have lessened over time. So there is the need for more investment. But I think it's important to understand that that's not the only piece. If we don't modernize the system the way it works, um, if we don't ensure efficiency in our operating rooms and our hospitals and we're not you know, driving towards accountability and monitoring that progress, we're never going to be able to catch up with the degree of issues we're looking at right now. Do you think that Canadians should be allowed to 
be able to use private health insurance to get the care that they need? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think this is a challenging question, right? Because, you know, it comes down to how, what we feel about what people should be able to do as individuals and also what we value as a country. And, and I think we're at this difficult point where what we know is Canadians strongly value the ideal, the idea and the ideal of universal health care, but that system is not delivering. And then the question becomes, well, is an alternative, you know, parallel system the answer to that versus really better solving the problem of why our public health care system is failing? You know, and, and I think from an equity perspective, the better thing to do is to understand what's not working in the public system and ramp it up in a way that it meets the needs of Canadians rather than driving towards a two-tiered system where not everyone has the same access to care. But I, I do think it is a fair question for people to be able to ask, why do I have to sit here suffering while this is happening? And, and I think, unfortunately, this, this is sort of where we find ourselves right now, is we're really not delivering on the promise uh, of the universal health care system in the way that we should yeah. be. Um, and I think this is going to be a challenging discussion going forward. Yeah, and it's a discussion we've talked a lot about here on this show, and I, I know there's a lot of listener interest in this, and, and you mentioned the idea of a parallel system, which we see in a lot of other countries where there would be a universal public system available to everyone, but there would also be a parallel system, a private system that people would have access to should they choose to access it through private insurance or whatever. Is is the policy of the Canadian Medical Association, and, and I believe it is, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the CMA policy remains that Canadians should have access to private health insurance. Is that right? No, we we really support the idea of a publicly funded system, but I, I think sometimes where it's confusing is people don't understand how much of a of a of a privatization there already is in our system, right? So I don't th- I don't think that we should take off the table the opportunity to look at ways we can leverage things in the system to better serve Canadians. So for example, you know, most family doctor's offices are privately run businesses, but they're paid for through a universal insurance scheme with the government. But the person paying the rent, paying the staff is a private physician who's running that like a small business. And there are examples of, of private bases that are funded by public dollars that that provide excellent service to Canadians. So I think we need to make sure that we know what we're talking about when we're talking about private public dollars. You know, 30% of dollars spent on healthcare in Canada are spent privately. I think what we don't want to see in Canada is the development of a parallel hospital system and extensive sort of two two parallel tracks because we just don't have the human health resources to staff that. But I don't think that means that we can't be looking at opportunities to move things out of hospitals. You know, we've seen so much progress, for example, in surgeries over the years that don't necessarily require hospitalizations. So are we looking at opportunities to create surgical centers and things outside of the traditional hospital space that could be more efficient, still using public funds uh, to ensure that Canadians can access care? And I think it's those are the types of things that we need to be thinking about rather than the creation of, of two similar systems that exist in parallel to each other that would really drain the health resources that we have that are already inadequate. Last question for you. Is there a really bad doctor shortage in Canada right now? And what should be done about that? Yes, we, we do have a doctor shortage. We do have fewer doctors for po- the population than many comparable countries. And, and it's a really acute issue in primary care of family medicine. 
that due to many structural and payment issues is really struggling to attract and retain newer doctors. And that's why so many do- people don't have a doctor or a primary care doctor. And, and this is a huge challenge. Of course, the geography of our country makes it even more challenging. It's not like it's that easy for everyone just to drive, you know, to the next town to get a doctor. Um, so the, the whole issue of the human health resource side of, of healthcare, it's doctors, it's nurses, it's many healthcare professionals, is a whole nother challenge that needs to be addressed with a, a federal plan. Party leadership race now. Now, this is a contest that we've been following closely here on the show, and it's getting uh, pretty nasty out there, too. Pierre Poiliev, uh, the apparent front runner. I mean, you got to figure he's in the lead here. Uh, to win the leadership of the Conservative Party, just judging by the number of people that he's drawing to his rallies. He's getting big crowds wherever he goes. Now, the Conservative MP, Pierre Polyev, I think fair to say, looking to lead the Conservatives to the right of the political spectrum here in Canada. Now, is that a problem for the Conservatives? Could they lose support? Could this party tear itself apart? He was on the show last week. We talked about the race. He really went after Jean Charest, his opponent for the liberal leadership. And we had a really interesting talk when he was here, including I asked him about his pledge, his promise to make Canada the freest country in the world, the freest country in the world. And I asked him what that meant and which country in the world he considers to be the freest right now which is the country that we have to beat in order to achieve this title here's what you had to say to me have a listen get rid of the mandates uh going to uh stop this just inflation and unleash uh, the free enterprise system so people can have big paychecks that buy homes gas and food and i'm going to get rid of the censorship online that trudeau is trying to bring in all of these practical steps will make canada a freer place with the goal of putting people back in the in charge of their lives Okay, Pierre Polyev speaking to me on last week's show. He then went on to rip Jean Charest to pieces here, his opponent for the Conservative Party leadership. Is this a problem for this party? All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Anne Francis. She is with a group called Center Ice Conservatives, and they want the Conservative Party to steer more toward the middle. Hi, Anne. Hi there. Thanks a lot for coming on. What are your concerns here with this leadership race right now? And tell me about the center ice conservatives. What are you guys trying to achieve? Well, uh, I think it's really supposed to be a landing place for a lot of people who are like myself, view ourselves as conservative. I've run in the conservative uh, elections. I've run in the elections twice for the conservative party. And uh, sometimes I hear what's being said about the conservative party either in the media or when I door knock, and I don't recognize myself in those descriptions. And I think there are a lot of people like me who consider ourselves conservative, but what we're hearing just doesn't jive with our own perspective. So Centerized Conservatives is really a place, a forum, uh, for people to be able to come and find out more, not just get those headlines and catchphrases, because unfortunately, that's where people get their news now. You know, a headline is supposed to be Uh, something catchy and interesting to get you to read the rest of the article. It's not supposed to be the only news source. But nowadays, that's what people use as their news source. And I think we need to, outside of an election period, provide a platform for people to really see what the Conservative Party is all about and what people who are like me, more centre and just a little right of centre, 
uh, how we feel and how we view issues. Okay, that's very interesting. So when when you say that you are hearing descriptions of the Conservative Party that that don't align with with your values and your vision for the party, what kind of things are you hearing? Well, I think in any situation, in any party, in any family, in any group, it's the people that are on the extreme that tend to sound louder or sound more interesting. And so that's what people hang on to. But really, uh, most people who are like me who are conservative, you know, we want fiscal prudence. We want our government to provide uh, good platforms and solutions for people. We don't want the government to take over and dictate what's going to happen, but we want them to be able to provide the platform so that Canadians can succeed and can thrive and really do the best that they can in the circumstances that they face. We want a government, and it's sad to say this, but lately, you know, I want a government and I want a leader who, who sets the bar internationally a little higher than, please don't embarrass us in the public eye. You know, I want someone who's going to be able to go out and represent Canada internationally and, and make people realize what a great country it is. Um, and we're not seeing a lot of that, unfortunately. Speaking to Anne Francis, she is with Center Ice Conservatives. They're work, working to elevate the moderate voices in the federal conservative party. And you mentioned that you have been a candidate for the, this party in the past. Which candidate do you support for the leader of the party? I've decided this time around not to endorse anyone until at least the debate, because I feel that, again, people get their news from those headlines and catchphrases. And so I don't really want to know a leader by their prepared speeches or their stump speeches or their great videos. I want to see what they're like on their feet. I want to know how they're going to deal with each other, how they're going to answer questions from a moderator, how they're going to be able to get out of conflict and, and figure out you know, really, what do they stand for based on their reactions, not based on their prepared statements? So I'm going to stay neutral okay. until at least the debate. Okay, so you do not rule out supporting Pierre Polyev then. Is that right? Well, as an individual, like I said, I, I did this in the last leadership race as well. I'm making a point of meeting as many of them as I can. I have met Pierre so far a few times. And actually, I did a fundraiser. Pierre did a fundraiser with me. Uh, in the last election, uh, it was a Zoom fundraiser. Obviously, we were in a pandemic, so we weren't meeting people uh, live. And so I know Pierre, and I've had many discussions with him. I made a point of meeting Jean Charest when he came to Montreal. And uh, I believe Leslie Lewis is going to be in Montreal this week, so I'm going to try and go out and see her. And really, my goal is meet all of them, have frank discussions, tell them what I'm looking for as a candidate if I were to run again, and see really what their positions are face-to-face. -face. I'm tired of just hearing stump speeches. I want to know what it is they bring to the table and how they react. Well, I guess there's a perception right now that Apoliev is more of the right-wing candidate for the leadership of this party and that Jean Charest might be the more moderate or centrist candidate for the party. What do you I mean would you agree with that analysis? I mean that's what we're looking at, right? Effectively. So I don't call myself a politician. I haven't been doing this for my entire life. Uh, although I've run in two elections, the second one was very close after the first one. So in 2019 and 2021, so I'm, I'm still kind of, I, I don't, I, I really don't view myself as a politician. And I think I'm very representative of a lot of Canadians. And most of us don't think in terms of these labels, right, left, red, blue, 
you know, we really do approach things based on the issues that we think are important. And so peer is a very critical role for the party and in holding the government to account. He does a great job in Parliament. Um, Jean Charest has got lots of experience. So between the two of them, they're very interesting candidates. But there are others as well. I haven't had a chance to meet Scott Atchison yet. Very interesting person, background. The videos he's putting out seem really interesting. Uh, Leona Alislev, relatively unknown. She only had one term before that. She was a liberal. Uh, So, you know, it's... There is, I'm, I'm definitely not closing any doors right now. Yeah. One of the things that Pierre Paulia said to me on the show here last week was he was highly critical of Charest. He called Charest a liberal. He said Charest is not a real conservative. Criticized him for raising taxes in Quebec when he was the Quebec premier. Criticized his support of a carbon tax. So he's highly critical of, of Charest. And Charest likewise has been highly critical of poliev and poliev support of, of the trucker convoy for example and suggesting mm-hmm. that should disqualify should disqualify poliev for the leadership of the party when you when you see these these kind of attacks happening right now is that just sort of standard political theater to you the, the usual back and forth in politics or do you think that there's a risk of this party i don't know being torn apart I think, unfortunately, in campaigns, whether it's a leadership campaign or a general election, people sort of fall into that mode where they feel they have to attack and, you know, how can I get the biggest headline, make the most clickbait? And I do think people sort of fall into that, and it's a little unfortunate. I think it, you know, may draw attention to things that people may not otherwise be looking at the conservative race right now. So in one respect, it's you know, there's no such thing as bad advertising. So there's one, that's one way of looking at it, but it's not how I view things. And it's, I don't think it's how most Canadians want to see things. We want to see people who are going to put forth positive ideas, solutions to the problems that we're facing. And that's the stuff that I look for. Those are really the things. The other stuff is just noise. And I, I try to weed it out and really zero in on what are the important things. And that's what centerized conservatives wants to do. We really want to focus on what are the issues what are solutions? What are conservative ideas that will be able to bring to bear to those issues and those concerns that people have and really show people that it's more than just these headlines and these little, uh, you know, sound bites. Do you think that the Conservative Party has to uh, adopt a, a moderate, centrist policy platform and message for Canadians in order to achieve power? Like, is that the only way to to beat Trudeau is to try and take some of that middle ground. I think the fear with Polyev is that he might be a guy who can win the Conservative Party leadership, but maybe he's not a guy who can defeat Trudeau in a general election campaign if he's perceived as too far to the right. Like, do you think, do you think that's where the Conservatives need to be? They need to be more moderate, more centrist? Well, the funny thing is I think most Conservatives and many Canadians are more moderate and more centrist. I don't think we have to become so. I think we just have to, as you said, I think you said earlier, we try to elevate that position. Um, So it's not something that doesn't already exist. People, unfortunately, try to brush a whole team or a whole party with the same brush. And, you know, even within a family or within a hockey team, you know, we're using centerized conservatives as the hockey motto. Even within a hockey team, you may have a few players who occupy the same role. But they do things in a different way. So they may be all striving to get to the same place, 
but they have different styles and different techniques and different things that they bring to bear to that role. And it's the same thing in the Conservative Party. We're not all the same. We really do come at things with different backgrounds. And so there really is a variety of views and positions on different issues, even within the parties. And it's the same. The same is true of the Liberals. The same is true of the NDP. But I will say that with the Liberals um, having this deal with the NDP, they're really showing where they've been heading for a while. And that does leave a lot of people kind of politically homeless. And what we want to show them yeah. is they shouldn't be homeless. There's a place for them. And they really should have that second look at the Conservative Party and at different candidates and really get involved and see how they can understand more what, you know, what we're trying to inform them about. So there's a great spot for them right in the middle. Okay, Anne, we're following this contest very closely. Thank you very much for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So much for having me. Oh, let's talk about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's now famous use of the Federal Emergencies Act to bring an end to the Freedom Convoy, the trucker protests and blockades that tied up downtown Ottawa for all those weeks. This has been controversial, to say the least, and now the federal government has launched an inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. Trudeau has named for a longtime judge, Paul Rouleau, to head this independent public order emergency commission, which will review the use of the Federal Emergencies Act in Canada to bring an end to the trucker convoy. All right, we got a great panel standing by on this. Now let's go back now though to the use of the Federal Emergencies Act when the trucker convoy was in full swing in Ottawa. Here is Justin Trudeau on uh, commenting about his use of these powers. We've been very clear that these measures will applied only when and where necessary. And again, these tools are to supplement local capacity, not negate or override it. As soon as these measures are no longer required, we will gladly lift them. This is responsible leadership. Okay, that's Trudeau speaking about his use of the Emergencies Act. It was opposed by the federal Conservatives. Here's interim Conservative leader Candace Bergen. He said he needed the act to force tow trucks to tow trucks away, but as he's already said, the trucks are gone, so we don't need tow trucks any longer. What power is needed right now, today, under the Emergency Act that doesn't already exist under current Canadian law? 
Okay, all right. Let's discuss this now. We've got a great panel assembled for you. Joe Roberts is a columnist with The New Left on Substack, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Also welcoming back David Creighton. David is the senior parliamentary columnist for the Western Standard. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on again. Nice to be back. Thank you. Okay, thank you to both of you guys. Hey, Joe, let me go to you first. Trudeau's use of the Federal Emergencies Act, do you think it was the right thing to do? You know, Mike, I think it, uh, it was the right thing to do. And I think we'll look back after this inquiry, which I think is a very responsible thing. It's part of the legislation. We have to look back and look at the use, make sure it was all within constitutional means. And I think when we look at what was actually occurring on the ground in Ottawa, you know, it was way far more than a peaceful protest. This became an occupation that intimidated the citizens of Ottawa and dragged on and on and on and subverted the rule of law. David, your thoughts. What do you think about the use of the uh, Emergencies I can't Act? Believe there's, I, I really can't believe there's a responsible person defending a joker like Justin Trudeau invoking this act. This is most the most re- irresponsible thing he's done. He's 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 Mr. Censorship. He's Mr. Authoritarian. And I can't believe I've got people on the left defending him for doing this, because this is ridiculous. Justin Trudeau has abrogated any anything he has for freedom by doing this. This is the most ridiculous thing he's ever done. He went after blue-collar workers by doing this. And, and we supposedly, I'm, I'm supposedly arguing with a blue-collar person here? This is absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. Okay, Joe, Justin you better get in there. He went defend- after people who were trying to drive a truck for a living. And, okay. and I'm hearing that this is a responsible thing to do? No, absolutely not. Joe Roberts, go ahead. Well, let's talk about what's responsible, right? It was far more than what was just happening in Ottawa. Protesters on the border at Windsor and the Ambassador Bridge were shutting down our economy and hurting blue-collar workers every single day in this country. There were uh, elements at Coots Crossing that, uh, that CSIS said were advocating for civil war, that were armed to the teeth, and were ready to take this thing far beyond a peaceful protest about mask mandates or vaccines. This was about feet. something Ooh, more. This was... Hang on, David, David I'll, give, David, I'll give you a chance. I'll give you a chance. Hang no, on a no, sec, Joe. Is, just This is myth. This is complete disinformation. Nobody was armed to the teeth. This was January 6th in slow burn mode. It was all about subverting Canadian ah, democracy. And in a country where we just had an election, nonsense. it was very clear about what the outcome was. David, Thank go ahead. You for reading your Trudeau propaganda points. There was absolutely no arms. Were you talking to those people? No, you weren't. You were you were spending your time as a jacuzzi Marxist on BC and at the coast. I was out there every day talking to those people at the at the goddamn event. I was there every day. I was there talking to those protesters. It's the crime level and went down every day in in in, in, in they, Ottawa during those did, times. Don't they tell not, me that. Don't tell well, me that there was any did, did the, did the in the RCMP weapons at absolutely Okay, hang on a sec, guys. I'm going to inc- in, uh, insist that you don't talk over each other. But David, let me put this to you. The RCMP did arrest 13 people and did seize weapons at the Coots border crossing in Alberta. I mean, that's not in dispute, is it? 
No, we're not. We're not talking about the Coots border in in, these, in in Alberta. We're talking about what happened in Ottawa. And well, was, the Emergencies Act, the Emergencies Act reason, applied to the borders, was, though, too, not just Ottawa. For some reason, the the OPP said that the the Freedom Convoy poised a national security risk when it never did. There was not a single arm found, not a single firearm found amongst those people. And I'm just amazed that I'm hearing left-wing people defend people like Justin Trudeau for bringing down authoritarian laws against freedom protesters. It's amazing to me how far they have gone from freedom of speech and freedom of, of assembly. Okay, Joe Roberts, I don't think you were alleging there were arms in Ottawa. You were talking about the arms that were seized in the, at the Alberta border crossing. Is that right? That's correct. I mean, look, the, the, yeah. the invocation of the Emergencies Act applied very strictly to three locations. It was the Ambassador Bridge border crossing, it was Coots Crossing, and it was Ottawa downtown. It was beyond that. There was no implications for this act. That's what I say, when I say, and look, I'm no fan of Justin Trudeau. I've been critical of him on many occasions. But I believe that this government showed great restraint and great responsibility in invoking this act. You know, it's funny when we talk about what was the actual impetus for these people to be there, right, is they were there talking about vaccine mandates, and it turned into something else, which was Justin Trudeau must step down. We must subvert Canadian democracy. You know, in in, uh, 2020, someone who's on this radio show right now said that radicals always tend to exploit issues for political gain. And to do so just when those issues are being responsibly managed through democratic means. Those were David Creighton's own words about the BLM protest. Well, David, obviously, communists like you are exploiting issues <laughs> like this for your own end. Because this issue was over when, when Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. It was already over at the border crossing. He invoked the Emergencies Act after this was over. He invoked the Emergencies Act to punish people at the border. He invoked the Emergencies Act to punish people who are his political enemies, to get after their bank accounts, to get after their pets, to get after their children. This is about a political enemies list, which people like you used to understand, but you don't anymore. So as we continue talking about Justin Trudeau's use of the Federal Emergencies Act to end to end the trucker blockade in Ottawa, it is now the subject of an official inquiry and review uh, into the use of those federal powers. We got lots of calls on this one right now. Let's go to your calls. We got uh, we got Laura on the line in Langley. Hi, Laura. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm just uh, calling in to address the allegations of the arms at the Coots border that that was brought in by protesters. And there was a point that was made earlier about groups always trying to, you know, jump onto a movement and, and capitalize on it. The native protesters were the ones that, that figured out that these people from Diagonal had come down with arms, and they were the ones that reported it to the RCMP. My brother-in-law was there, and he was part of the report that, that got those arms off of that protest. And so that's never been reported in media, though. It was the original protesters that were there that reported that to the RCMP, and they should be applauded for that. And the right. invocation of the Emergencies Act by Trudeau is the most egregious overstepping of authority in our history. It's, it's so infuriating, and this is why people are so passionate about it and why it's so difficult for us to even describe what he's done, because there are no words to describe how 
dictatorial authoritarian he has he has been in this whole thing. He didn't even take the opportunity to go and talk to those protesters. He would go out, he went out and kneeled with Black Lives Matters, which caused like $5 billion of damage in the states. That, like those are protests that need to be shut down with okay. things like the Emergencies Act, not okay, the thank, people's thank you. protests. Thank, thank you, Laura, for the call. Um, do we still have Joe Roberts there, Leo? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think we, Joe, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay, Joe, what do you think of that? What do you think of that call? Well, look, I think, you know, calling the prime minister a dictator or an authoritarian, I mean, this is the stuff of QAnon fever dream. This isn't reality. We just had an election that was free and fair, as are all elections in Canada, and the guy won. Look, if you want recourse against this decision, which was perfectly within the right, it went to the parliament. The parliament voted to support the Emergencies Act invocation. If we want recourse then the recourse happens at the ballot box. It does not happen on the streets of Ottawa, and it certainly does not happen through armed members demanding a change in government. That is not what democracy is. Okay. Like, I think that the situation blocking borders, blocking border crossings in our country, it, I think is obviously not on and should not be tolerated. The uh, Occupying the streets of Inc. of downtown ottawa for weeks on end i just wonder if these challenges these problems these protests could have been resolved without the use of these powers david Creighton, like well, your thoughts like, could have been resolved and you know yeah. are we not getting to the answer here of course it could have been resolved and and, yeah. and and we have not resolved the question here which my opponent has not even answered yes we resolved the pro problem at the border before justin trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. He invoked the Emergencies Act after the problem was solved at the border. He invoked the Emergencies Act to get at his political enemies in Ottawa. And that's the only reason he did. And he was he brutally put down that protest, which at one time, my friend at the other end of this phone call would have absolutely condemned but now because his friend is in government he thinks that's fine well don't you don't you think don't you think though david, david it's not fine david, to crush your opposition it's not fine to be an authoritarian and that last david, put yeah. a finger on the problem justin trudeau is an authoritarian governor justin trudeau don't you, don't you is think an though david governor, and he david at some point respect democracy Hey, David, at some point, though, that occupation of downtown Ottawa dragged on for, what, three weeks? You can't let that go on forever. Right? Yes, you can let that go on forever because really? Justin Trudeau lets democracy die forever. Because we are living in a state right now where Justin Trudeau does not respect democracy. And we, okay, well, I think, I think for the people who are living down there, uh, you know, I think they'd probably have I was had living down there. I'm living well, down so there. You, okay, so you were you were okay <laughs> with it. I'm talking to people who are not living down there. I was yeah, living Joe, down there. I was down there every day talking to those people. And I tell you, crime was down. And I tell you, people respected the fact that we had, finally, we had, we had people in the streets talking about democracy. And okay. Justin Trudeau pretended he was living in the Matrix. And he well, disappeared. He would not had, talk to those uh, people. He disappeared for five days. He would not. And he pretended there were Nazi flags. He pretended there were white supremacists. It was all a joke. And the okay, mayor David, of Ottawa me, pretended 
the arsonists were were there, and that was all. Let me give. Let me give. Let me give your. Let me give the other panelists. Hang on a sec, David. Let me give the other. Let me give Joe an opportunity here. Joe, go ahead. Look, Mike, you hit it right on the head. You can't occupy a city long term and shut it down, ruin people's lives in the day to day, honk horns all hours of the night, and keep their children awake, and expect them to say this is a great movement for democracy, and it's unlawful. Right. No one said that the truckers couldn't come to Ottawa and protest. Of course, they were welcomed. They were allowed. The police didn't bar them from being there. They didn't ask them to leave. But when it dragged on for weeks and weeks and weeks and it started to affect our economy and it started to affect people's lives in a seriously negative way, the government has the obligation. That is the responsibility of leadership. That's the responsibility of the prime minister. To take action, and that's See, what he the did. Only th- here's the thing, though, and Joe, we just got 30 seconds left. Uh, could they not have resolved that in Ottawa without the Federal Emergencies Act being invoked? Like, once the police moved in, they did an effective job in clearing the streets. Did they really need the Emergencies Act to do that? Your thoughts, 30 seconds. Look, the federal government says they needed the Emergencies Act to do it because they needed to coordinate between provincial and federal authorities. And I believe that that's probably true. Could it have happened without it? Maybe. But it's in the past. Okay. And you know what we'll learn? We'll learn it through this inquiry because that's what it's here for. All right. I want to thank both of you guys for being here today. Thank you for your time. Joe Roberts, the new left on Substack. David Craden, he is the senior parliamentary columnist at the Western Standard. Let's talk about crime in the city of Vancouver now. And we've talked a lot about this on the show over the past few weeks, especially some of the crime we're seeing in specific neighborhoods, whether it's the the West End, Gastown, uh, the Granville Entertainment District. There have been lots of problems in these neighborhoods. Had lots of guests on this as well, including Julio Sachi, who is the president of Sachi and Sachi Fine Jewelry. And here's what Julio had to say. It's it's changed severely from through these 33 years. The last year, I would say the last six months, especially, but the last year and a half, two years, it's been aggressively. The crime has gone up. And it's it's not the same as it used to be. And it's not a good look for Vancouver locally and also for the tourism for Vancouver as well. Okay, it's uh, Julio Sachi, who was a previous guest here on the show. One of uh, many guests we've had on who are concerned about crime in the city. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Martin Anderson, who is an SFU professor and criminologist. Who, uh, and I appreciate his time today. Martin, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, Martin, you think this is overblown. Is that right? Like, you think the Vancouver police are exaggerating the crime the crime in the city? Well, I think what, what they're doing is they're exaggerating any change, right? So um, I don't, I want to start off saying that, like, crime, you know, crime is, uh, crime is not good. Crime is bad, especially violent crime for the victims. And uh, so we need to we need to do what we can to reduce these things. Uh, the VPD has been very good over the past couple of years, in particular, their year and a half on um, spreading a lot of information about violent crime without giving um, without giving much context on what's going on. And then when they tell you tell me that they don't know what's that I don't know what's going on because I don't have the data, I ask for it and they won't give it. Right? So they are uh, they're not being transparent with with what's going on, where these things are happening. And um, so I, if you look at the overall trend for crime in the city over the past 20 to 25 years, the, yeah. cr- the assaults that they're talking about 
uh, it's it's been relatively it's been relatively stable. So bad, uh, but relatively mm-hmm. stable over the past twenty to twenty five years. So when they talk, so when the VPD and we, we talk to them a lot here on the show, when they talk about the rise in random, unprovoked stranger assaults in the city, which VPD says is averaging four a day, four random attacks a day, stranger on stranger violence. You're saying you don't you don't believe those stats, or maybe you think that's just been what what it's always been, or? I mean, yeah, I'm just saying that I don't. It's uh, I don't see these numbers as being that much higher than they were before. Like crime has gone up during the pandemic, right? And uh, some research I've done with Tara Hodgkinson at Wilfrid Laurier University in Ontario has has shown that in different Vancouver neighborhoods, and primarily violent crime has has gone up in the poor areas of the city. And but you know we're not uh, you know we're talking about increases of of uh, two to three crimes a week, and uh, and again. These are these are not good situations. These are these are bad people who are getting victimized in these contexts. Um, but I and so and there has been an increase. But they are talking about this as if it's a surge, and they like to report on these things as if they're in percentage changes. Well, the percentage changes from you know from low low numbers, right? So going from like ten to thirteen crimes in a month—that's a thirty percent increase. It sounds it sounds like it's dramatic, um, and but it's 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 three crimes. And it's also a very small so, percentage of what they do. One percent of their yeah. crimes are serious assaults. So when they talk about four random attacks in the city a day, you're not buying that. You don't believe that's true. I'm not. I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm just saying that I don't. I don't think it's changed that much. And that more police isn't uh, also isn't the problem. We need housing. We need social services. We need addiction services. We need mental health services. We need a living wage. Uh, we need food. We need clothing. Like the populations that have suffered the most from from COVID are those who are living in these poor areas. They've been victimized by the economy shuttering, and victimized again by the you know these increases in crime and the, and the level of the crime that were there before. These areas have always okay. been high crime in Vancouver. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot to business owners and residents in some of the neighborhoods that are having problems with this, like Gastown or the West End, and and they will consistently say that they believe that it, the problem is getting worse. So let me play another clip here for you. So John Boychuk, who's been a guest on the show here a couple of times, he owns Davy Tanning in the Davy Village there. And this is a business he's run for a long time. He's got a tanning salon there. And he said for a long time it was a pe- pretty peaceful neighborhood. But he says lately uh, he's seen it get a lot worse. And here's what he had to say to me, and I'll get your thoughts. We talked to clients who have been biz- coming to our business for decades that are now saying, I'm not coming in the evenings anymore because I'm terrified to walk down Davy Street. Yeah, And some have even stated, I've had it. I have been in this neighborhood. I have patronized this neighborhood. And it's time for me to get the hell out of this neighborhood because I see it just going straight downhill. Okay, John Boychuk there, owner of Davy Tanning Salon. So when he says that his customers are afraid, do you think that they're they're afraid because, what, the VPD is inflating the, the number of, uh, the amount of violent crime? Or do you think that they're 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 afraid unnecessarily. What are your thoughts, Martin? Well, I don't. Again, I don't think the VPD are inflating anything. It's just that they're not giving context on how things have changed. If they have, you know, over they cite 2017 to 
2019, which is a bit of a dip in level two assaults. Uh, and these like these people are feeling real fear, and um, they think there may be a lot more um, a lot more activity on the streets that is that is causing fear. It, it may be that they've they've seen a few more crimes. When things go when things do go up, uh, you're more likely to end up seeing things uh, like actually witnessing uh, criminal activity, but also the with the constant barrage of uh, hearing about these stranger violent attacks uh, in yeah. in social media, that's that's going to have an impact on people. And, well, I'm taking yeah. taking a look at some statistics that were released to me by VPD today for your thoughts, and they call these some troubling trends. So, the Vancouver Police Department says they are cataloging four unprovoked stranger assaults per day on average, which they say is a 33 percent increase between 2019 and 2021. Uh, they say hate crimes, uh, reports of hate crimes are up 52 percent since 2018, a lot higher lately, including hate crimes against Asian people in particular. Graffiti, yeah. graffiti, they say, is up 84 percent citywide pre-pandemic, -pre uh, almost a 300 percent increase in graffiti in Chinatown. Like, are you say, you're saying those numbers are like consistent with what it's always been? It's not getting worse. That's your thought. That's your view of it. Well, it's just that if you think about what they they said, right? So they're averaging four a day, which is an increase, um, an increase of thirty three percent. Well, what's a thirty three percent increase to get it to four? It's going from three to four. Um, you know, it's it's one it's one uh, one crime a day. And so this isn't, and this is one crime of of the the number of calls they, that they end up getting over the course of the day, which is going to be in the thousands. They have about 250, 220, 250,000 calls a day or a year, pardon me. And so they're they're making it sound like these things are out of control. And it's not that these, it's not that it isn't bad. You know that extra victim of crime is suffering, and if they're hearing me talking about this, or it might make them angry. Um, but if you think about this from the city level, um, it's not a huge impact. It's not a huge change on what's going on in the city. We need to we need to do what we can to prevent these things, and more police isn't what's going to end up uh, having an impact. So here. you believe? So do you think, therefore, that the Vancouver Police Department should have its budget cut? Yes. Yeah. Wow. They, they, uh, if we, crime has been falling across, across in, in Vancouver for the past 25 years. Most of that crime is property crime. Um, some of it has been, some of it has been violence. You know, we're in an era of BLM and defund the police and reallocating funds that would have gone to police to things like mental health services, addiction services housing to help these people rather than having this revolving door of the police and of taking people into the criminal justice system into the health system just to have them set back back out onto the street and yeah. you know this is the city of vancouver tried to reduce their budget by by a measly 5.7 million dollars when something like i believe like 25 percent of city staff got laid off during covid those who stayed on but... ended up taking pay decreases and then they ended up um, going to the director of police services, who is a former cop, by the way, um, saying that, oh, we want our $5.7 million, which is a, a, a small percentage of their budget. And then I they, think, they won. I, I would think that if you talk to most people in the city of Vancouver right now who are, who are dealing with some of this stuff, that 
they would be appalled at the idea of cutting the budget for for the police. They'd probably want it to go the other way. Like when you talk about these random stranger assaults, like four a day, and and you think as well, it's just one more assault a day compared to compared to past past numbers. I mean, you're still talking like like what is that, seventeen hundred victims a a year of random random stranger assaults? Well, the increase of one. The increase of one a day would be. Yeah, well, think about one of the cases. So, first of all, for that increase, that'd be one a day, uh, and so that's you know another three hundred sixty-five, not seventeen hundred. It's still bad. I'm like, talking total, wrong. right? Um, but just like one of those assaults that they ended up um, that they ended up tweeting about, uh, going back a couple of months now, was somebody who on on Broadway around Oak smashed a glass, took some you know took some broken glass and started and and attacked people, a number of women yeah. actually, yeah. which is a horrible crime. Absolutely right. horrific crime. Yeah. Um, but do you think the person who ended up doing that was well? They had no, actually. I think, I think the police. I think the police themselves would say they believe there was, the, and they did in fact say they believe there was some mental illness involved there. But you, you still having people being chased chased down the hallways of their own home with someone armed with broken glass. Yes, and 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 the way to the way to end up uh, mitigating that is not to end up having more police on the street. Uh, I just think like how many how many cops would have to be on the street out in patrol to actually have been at that particular place at the particular time when that happened to have prevented yeah. it, versus putting funding into something in, into mental health services into addiction services so that person wouldn't have walked out of the hospital, and and then attacked people. Right, like okay. we need, you know, we, what we need here is more. We need more social services. We need. We have. We have a population that's desperate. We have a population that has suffered more under COVID than anybody else. You know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to work from home. Right, I didn't lose my okay. job because I work in the lower end service sector, making trying to do my best to make ends meet, and then the economy shutters and I'm out of work. Maybe I can, maybe I can get the money from the government on this. Maybe I can't if I don't have a fixed address and. Um, and you know, and there's uh, addiction issues that are going on. Um, okay. It's just, uh, yeah, it's a horrible situation. And I don't think more police is the solution. We need more social services. All right. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Uh,